Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And we are here uh, ahead of week five of the season to, to preview the weekend. It's an exciting weekend. SEC play gets underway. Uh, the Big 12 has a soft opening. They, they have one series, but they get underway. Conference USA gets underway. Big West gets underway. A lot of conferences get conference play underway this weekend. Uh, so we're excited about that. We've got a lot of news to get to uh, from the last week in college baseball. Uh, so a, a busy time here on the Baseball America College podcast. A busy time in college sports, Joe, as uh, the basketball tournaments start this weekend. I put together you know, my bracket, you know, both the real bracket and the, uh, the OMA bracket, which I do every year to, uh, as if the, these were baseball teams playing. Uh, as we record this, the tournament proper has not started they played the first four but it will be later this uh later today and as, as you're listening to this maybe you're also uh tracking the basketball tournament and if you're not uh we've got we've got plenty of baseball talk for you here as well but joe this is a great weekend for college sports that maybe uh the best weekend because you have all this basketball you have conference play uh happening in, in much of the country for for baseball for softball uh, I, I really enjoy this weekend as a, just as a sports consumer. Yeah, for sure. It is. Um, I've been at games before baseball games um, this weekend. And I've, I've obviously been, been home for this weekend quite a bit. And it, it's a unique experience in both ways, because, you know, obviously if you're at home, you're, you're watching a lot of basketball, you're, you know, mixing in, at least for us, we're mixing in, you know, the baseball into the basketball and, uh, just really consuming a lot of it that way. And then if you're, I found, you know, if you're on the road this weekend and at a series or something, there's just a lot of, if you're at one of the bigger places that has, you know, TV monitors in the press box, uh, they were often on games, um, at least until the game, the baseball game starts. And they usually have to, I don't know if have to is the right way to put it, but they choose to put Sometimes. the, 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 <laughs> yes, the feed of the baseball game on the monitors. Not always though. Uh, but there, there's usually like some, basketball something going on there where and if not a bunch of people are watching it on like laptops and, and all that kind of stuff so there's it's kind of a cool like buzz just about the weekend in general i find even if you're even if you're out and about so it is a it is a fun weekend i know i actually no longer uh fill out a, a bracket like in a traditional sense or, or at all but um i found for a long time that i mean first of all it's always frustrating because it's um it really is just it's kind of a trope, but like it, it is the case that oftentimes, as long as the person filling out the bracket understands that the, the the teams with the lower number next to them are theoretically the better team, that's really all the information you need for. Funny, quick story on that. Baseball America bracket pool, like more than like a decade ago or something at this point, it was whenever the year that all the number ones made the final four, uh, our Ben Badler won, won the BA pool that year and Ben does not care does not watch college basketball uh but he was like i don't know what the big deal is they tell you who to pick <laughs> like that was that was a very that's paraphrased but very close to his actual like i you know they tell you who is supposed to win this game i just did that <laughs> yeah it is that, talk. <laughs> that is so funny because like and you and i would be in the same position right i mean obviously college baseball has a bracket but it doesn't work in the same way so we can't like you and I cannot necessarily like break down the bracket in the same way, like a college basketball uh, podcast could. Um, however, like I, I do find it funny that 
there's like a lot of time spent like breaking down these games on preview episodes. And again, let me be very clear. Teddy and I would be doing the same thing if we were in their shoes. So I'm not really casting stones. I just, I find it kind of funny understanding the same kind of the same behaviors in myself where like a lot of time is spent breaking down this game. And like in, in college basketball, you, you know, you've got the Ken Palm data, you've got the Bart Torvik data, you've got the, all these predictive metrics and, and resume based metrics and, you know, college basketball is just so available in terms of being able to break down the game. And then like, they'll just like boil it down to like, I've just got a feeling and they'll pick like the theoretically worst team, the worst team in that matchup for like no good reason. Right. And like the moral of that story though, is like what I was saying at the beginning, which is that as long as you understand how the bracket works, that's really all the information you need to potentially win the thing. And so like, I always found that I don't want to say frustrating because I understood that going in, but it's just like, I didn't really want to put stakes against that because that part could be frustrating, you know? Um, and then also I don't really want to have to root for my picks because I tend to, when I did fill out a bracket, I was much like Ben Badler where I would fill out a pretty chalky bracket for, for a lot of this. I didn't quite put it <laughs> the same way that he would, although it's a great, it's a great line, but it's just more like brackets are chalkier than we, than people typically fill them out. And so that was my theory of the case. And so I would fill out a chalky bracket, but I don't want to have to root for that. Like I want to root for chaos situations. Like, and sure, we, we do want to see Kentucky and Duke and, and Carolina and Kansas and all that stuff by the time we get to the final four, but you want some chaos on the first weekend. And like, I don't, so I want to be able to root for that to happen. I don't want to have to root for the three seed to beat the 14 um, just because that's what I have in my bracket. So I actually have a policy now and like maybe in the future, I'll go back on that if the right thing comes along, but as it is right now, I don't fill one out anymore. I, uh, I just filled that one out quickly because, uh, the Ion college ba- basketball podcast, which we talk about, uh, Gary Parrish and Matt Norlander there over at CBS. Uh, yeah, I just jumped in their pool. Um, so I have nothing on it. I just filled one out, threw it in there. See, uh, See where it lands. I also always fill out the uh, the the OMA bracket, the, the the basketball bracket, as if it were baseball. This year, uh, Notre Dame over Tennessee, um, and LSU basically got a bye to the Sweet Sixteen <laughs> because if you look at their if you look at how the the basketball bracket shakes out for LSU this year, they play uh, you know in a pod that the, the four teams that they play that that are there together. Uh, on opening weekend, they're the only team with a baseball program right now. So, <laughs> just a little fun, little quirks uh, to 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 that. You can find that on Twitter uh, if you're curious what that uh, what that that looked like for me. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. I have no such bracket though, so don't come there looking for that kind of thing on my Twitter account. You, you can go there looking for takes about music. That's uh, that's the most uh, yeah, recent thing I saw Joe. Apparently, yeah, about. yeah. Um, <laughs> So basketball is on, on everyone's minds around college sports, but there was a fair amount of college baseball news this week as well. Uh, so we wanted to round that up here uh, before we get into our weekend preview uh, here on the pod. Joe, let's start in Starkville on Monday, I guess it was. Uh, it was announced the days of the week this week. of I have no idea. Anyway, it was Monday that Landon Sims and Stone Simmons both came out uh, and said that they needed Tommy John surgery and they would be out for the remainder of the year. Both of them were hurt two weeks ago uh, when Mississippi State went to Tulane 
Landon Sims got the bulk of the attention. He uh, exited with a trainer uh, on Friday night of that series after striking out 10 of the first 11. But Stone Simmons was also hurt. Uh, he is, Simmons was perhaps Mississippi State's best bullpen arm, certainly up there. And Landon Sims is perhaps the best pitcher in college baseball or was uh, until his injury. So two big losses for Mississippi State, not unexpected, especially with Landon Sims. Will Clark went on the radio. Yes, Will Clark, like of Mississippi State legend, Will Clark, former big leaguer Will Clark, went on the radio the following day in Mississippi State's broadcast uh, and said that Sims had told him that he felt a pop or heard a pop in his elbow uh, when, d- during his start on, on Friday. And anytime that comes out, you know, it, people around baseball have a pretty good idea of when it is. So they did all the requisite MRIs and uh, evaluations and, and they determined that Sims needed Tommy John surgery, which he got on Tuesday. Uh, he posted that it was a, a successful surgery uh, and now will begin his rehab here eventually. And that probably is it for his career uh, at Mississippi State. He'll go into the draft uh, with several other college pitchers who are injured right now. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how major league teams work through that. It's quite common these days to see a, a player who underwent Tommy John surgery that year and did, didn't pitch or, or, you know, just had it that spring uh, and won't be able to pitch for his, his pro team for a little while as he recovers. It's quite common for those guys to see a guy like that in the first round. But, you know, this year there are multiple pitchers like that that have first round potential. So will they all be able to get in the first round? Will somebody go in the second round? Will that push one of them back to campus for a year. Remember all these guys have extra years of eligibility. You know, we'll just have to wait and see uh, how all of that shakes out. But uh, right now, Mississippi state trying to figure out what they're doing uh, with that two of their better, better arms on the pitching staff. Yeah. And in spite of that, they've, I think there's, I mean, you could look at this two ways. One is that you can look at it as like, Oh, think about how good we'd be if, if you know, Sims and stone Simmons healthy and, pitching it at full strength. The, the other side of it is, is that the pitching has shown signs of being good enough otherwise to really weather the storm and give Mississippi State a chance to, to really continue to compete when you talk about how good Kate Smith has been or, you know, Parker Stinnett, who seems like he's going to be a big piece moving forward. He pitched really well against Texas Tech in that little two-game midweek series they had. And so um, they've had some things go right on the mound that, you know, again, you could look at it a couple of different ways, but um, I think we'll, I mean, we'll probably talk a little more more about this as we get into SEC previews, but I think, you know, we'll know pretty quickly with Mississippi state kind of what this season's going to be, because I think generally they're still a regional team. Like, I don't think there's any, I don't, I don't have a lot of fear about them completely bottoming out here, but I do think we will learn very quickly of does this team still have any sort of Omaha ceiling left or has that all kind of left the building because it's just been too much at this point, because that also is a very real possibility, not just the injuries, but also the, the losses coming into the season that we've been talking about now for the last few weeks as, Hey, maybe these were bigger losses than we were giving them credit for being. And so I think pretty quickly in sec play, I think we'll get a feel for which way, which way that is going to go. I still think it's a high floor team, but um, you know, if there's any magic left in that in the genie bottle here, I think we're going to find out quickly. 
Yeah, so going forward, Mississippi State looks like they're going to ride with the rotation of Kate Smith, uh, Parker Stinnett, and Preston Johnson. Um, Stinnett is the new entry into the rotation, uh, the weekend rotation, as it were. He All he's done this year is 36 strikeouts and 17.2 innings, uh, holding opponents to 13 hits and nine walks. So that's pretty good. Uh, that's not a bad guy to, to be able to dump in there. But now we're talking about a guy that has to do that. You know, he made, he's made two starts to this point of the season. Most of that has been relief work. Uh, now, he has made – the two starts have been pretty good. Uh, that included one last week, um, you know, against Princeton. Uh, we'll, we'll see where, where things go now um, from here for him, and, and this week will be a big step up. I'm more concerned about Mississippi State's bullpen uh, with Stinnett moving from the bullpen to the rotation – and Stone Simmons being eliminated from the picture. Uh, there's a lot that's going to be riding on Brandon Smith, Pico Cone, uh, Brooks Auger, Miles Tepper, Cam Tullar. Like I ran off like four or five guys there. And like, so there is decent depth there, but some of those guys are new. Pico Cone is a freshman. Brooks Auger is uh, a junior college transfer. They just don't have SEC experience yet. They, can't have uh and you know the rest of those guys were kind of insulated last year from having to pitch in you know, you know several of them were insulated from having to pitch in massive spots uh because you had sims you had stinnett preston johnson was pitching out of the bullpen last year so uh they're going to need some guys to step up there in the bullpen and it would also help them a lot if jackson fristo could figure some things out he uh had some big moments as a freshman last season before struggling down the stretch. It's been a struggle at the start of the season for him as well. If he can recapture some of that magic, whether that uh, enables them to have a strong midweek starter or whether he would slide into the bullpen in some capacity, that would be, that'd be big for the Bulldogs. No doubt. No doubt. Um, like I said, I, you know, the, the biggest tests for them are, are still upcoming and um you know, I'll kind of be fascinated to see how much, you know, to what degree do you kind of, you know, we talk sometimes about championship DNA and, and all that kind of stuff. And like, how much does that end up mattering? Does this team overachieve its talent? Uh, does this team do what the 2018 team did it, it, for different reasons, you know, but made kind of a, a run that wasn't necessarily expected. So um, that all remains to be seen, but I, we will start learning a lot more starting this weekend. In addition to those injuries, we had news on another preseason All-American pitcher this week, and that is East Carolina left-hander Carson Wisenhunt. He, it was announced on Sunday at the end of ECU's series uh, over the weekend that he would be out for this season due to NCAA suspension. Um, I guess where that was left with uh, with Cliff Godwin was just saying that he is ineligible. Uh, Wisenhut later posted on his social that um, he had taken a supplement from a national, you know, nutrition store, whatever. Like he he bought some sort of of supplement that I guess was tainted. Uh, and he tested positive for banned substance and is, uh, he, he's out for the year. Um, he's 
been out the whole year. Like this has been an ongoing situation. It just hadn't come to a final resolution yet. So whatever ECU has done this year to this point has been without Wiz and Hunt. doesn't really change anything for them, except they now know that he won't be coming back. Uh, this is a guy that, you know, is a potential first round pick. We have a lot less experience knowing how teams will react to this kind of news than we do to, you know, injury news. And because we don't have all the facts, um, you know, it becomes even harder to speculate about that. But, you know, for now, uh, just a, a tough blow for ECU to be without Wizenhut all season. They've, they've, they've been working through things to this point. I'm sure they'll continue to work through those things, uh, but, but not good news for, for ECU to, to be without Wizenhut all season. No, I mean, you, you think about this ECU team from last year that was so good and, Yes, they had Wizen Hunt, but they didn't really have a fully operational Wizen Hunt. There was he was mostly a five inning pitcher, and he was still kind of in the process of becoming what we think he could become. But he was obviously a high end, nice piece to have in the rotation behind Gavin Williams, who was one of the best pitchers in college baseball over the last two thirds of the season last year. So this year, you kind of thought, okay, well, maybe Wizen Hunt is not as good as Gavin Williams was last year, but he should be something in that neighborhood, perhaps. And with the way he pitched for Team USA over the summer, you thought you know, that is, could be in the offing. Right. Um, and now that's, now they've gotten neither of them. And so the pitching staff is in a little bit of a, a little bit of a bind and, you know, um, I think it's a group that, that has some decent depth. I think they do a pretty good job at ECU of piecing pitching staffs together. I think that's something they've always done pretty well. They always lean heavily on the bullpen as it is. I think that becomes even more apparent this year, but it's a group that, Outside of Jake Kuchmaner, who's like a 10th year senior lefty, they I'm not sure what they hang their hat on on the pitching staff here. Like it's I think it's really just going to be weekend to weekend trying to really patch things together um, as far as it goes for ECU. And I, you know, I I hesitate to go too far on this, but I mean, ECU has gotten off the mat a little bit since getting swept opening weekend against Bryant but they're still nine and eight. And we talked about this last year. ECU is the outlier in the American had ECU won the conference tournament. That's a one bid league. I think we're headed there again. If ECU is not going to be at large quality and we'll see, like, I don't want to bury them on that necessarily already, but um, you know, they've missed some opportunities already. And Bryant has not played well since sweeping East Carolina. They had not won another game. It just until... it, they they just snapped a nine game losing streak. In fact, right. Like so, Bryant. I don't. I mean, they'll probably be the best team in the NEC, but they have not been good since sweeping East Carolina. So it's that's not series... helping ECU's RPI. That's that's for sure. Indeed, indeed. Like yeah, Bryant could be the best team in the NEC and still have an RPI of of one sixty. You know, um, so that's not going to be helping. They're not going to get a lot of help in American play, especially when you consider that you know. Tulane was looking like a candidate and they just lost a series to Evansville. I mean, they're going to, Tulane's going to end up with some high end wins. Swept at home by Evansville. Let's let's lay that out as clearly as, as, as we can. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of forgot they got swept. Yeah. Yeah. was a, you know, so Tulane's going to have some problems there. I think Evansville is better than Bryant in terms of, because they play in the Valley. So that's going to help their RPI, but but it's it's going to hurt. Indeed. Um, uh, Moral of the story here though, let me just put a, put a bow on it this way is that, um, you know, things have not gone, you know, as we, as we thought they would for East Carolina, this Wizenhunt hunt news certainly makes 
the climb even tougher. And, you know, we're used to this being an East Carolina team that is like leaps and bounds better than the rest of the American. A, I don't know if that is the case this year, especially in light of this news. And then secondarily, like this might be, this might just be a league. Um, and the RPI is not fully settled yet. So I don't want to get too latched onto that, but this might end up being a league that's like literally just looks like a traditional one bid league. And by that, I mean, not last year where it ended up being two because somebody else won the conference tournament. This might be nobody is in at large range and whoever wins the tournament goes like that could be <laughs> the reality for the American um, come at the end of the season, which just sounds nuts. But I, I am just struggling to understand where like the at large resumes are going to come from when you consider that most of the best opportunities these teams have to put good stuff on their resumes are in the rearview mirror now. So right now, they rank eighth in conference RPI. And I think that settles faster than regular RPI because you know, you're wrapping more pieces into the bow, right? So it's not just individual, you know, it, right now you can see some very wonky individual RPIs, but I think conference RPI seizes up a little bit faster. Uh, so that's not good news for the conference. The top ranked RPI team in the conference right now is Central Florida at 52, which also is not great. I think there are teams that can put together at-large resumes. Uh, now, whether they do so or not, that's a completely another matter. I think ECU still has the potential to do so, but they're the teams that want to be at-large teams in this conference are really going to have to you know, show it in conference play. They're, they're not going to – this conference typically has a bunch of teams all stacked up next to each other. Uh, if you want to be an at-large team from the American this year, I think you're going to have to show some real separation uh, because, you know, UCF, ECU, Houston, Tulane, even South Florida, which is sitting at 210 right now, um, you know, those teams all continue to play good competition in midweek games, but you're not going to, so you're, you're going to continue to have opportunities, but you have to take advantage of those and you're going to have to, to win your your AAC games as well. We're still two weeks off from the start of conference play here, so we'll see where it goes. But yeah, right now, not good news for ECU. The conference isn't in great shape either, so uh, we shall see where all the dust settles on that. Last bit of news. We did talk about this at the very end of last week's podcast. If you stuck it out all the way to the end, I mentioned that San Francisco fired coach Nino Geritano uh, on Sunday morning, which came two days after a lawsuit was filed by three former players alleging uh, several different allegations of misconduct against him and former assistant coach Troy Nakamura. San Francisco investigated some of this stuff in the fall. That investigation led to Nakamura getting fired in January and uh, Coach Girantano was formally reprimanded after that uh, investigation, but he was not fired. Uh, those players ultimately then filed a lawsuit again last Friday. Uh, I guess that was March 11. New allegations came to light in the lawsuit, according to San Francisco. Also, San Francisco learned that uh, Nakamura had been allowed on the field before last Wednesday's game against Fresno State and was seen like talking with coaches and stuff. 
San Francisco is now saying that they fired Gerontano basically because that that incident on Wednesday where Nakamura was allowed on the field uh, and also because of maybe some of the additional allegations from the lawsuit, but they are trying to say that it wasn't the lawsuit that led to the firing. Yeah, whatever the truth is on that, ultimately, Gerontano was fired. Some of the stuff in the lawsuit is kind of your more, I don't want to say garden variety, but general kind of verbal abuse uh, that, that we hear about times at times with, with coaches. Some of it is that kind of stuff. Some of it is much stranger. Uh, there is an incident described there where Troy Nakamura, uh, like as part of some sort of skit, uh, it was called, like dropped his pants on the field and was like crawling half naked on the field. Uh, so th there's just some stuff of uh, kind of sexualized nature in, in that aspect uh, and, and some verbal abuse. Uh, you can read more about that at baseballamerica.com. If you're really interested, I would encourage you though to seek out a story that the San Francisco Chronicle did last Friday when the lawsuit came out. They spoke to the three former players uh, and really went in depth on on all of that stuff. Uh, it is it does require a subscription to the to the Chronicle, but if you're interested, that that is the place where you can get the uh, the most information there. Yeah, I will. Um, it, admittedly, Teddy has done a lot more legwork on this than I have. Um, you know, I read a, a brief ESPN story that was a little less in depth than the San Francisco Chronicle story, but kind of wrapped it all up. So um, I will because of, of the nature of it, like I, I won't just, uh, you know, sling from the hip here with, with the takes and, and what have you, but, um, um, you know, certainly you just hope that the rest of the season for San Francisco, like the, the, the team just kind of gets to play it out and, you know, gets to have something resembling a normal season as difficult as that will be without, um, you know, a, a, what I have to assume is a full coaching staff, like they're, they're going to be a little bit shorthanded there. So, um, so yeah, you just hope they're able to kind of get a normal season out of this and that, uh, you know, those involved who, um, you know, were, uh, brought the issues forward, you know, um, you know, the things are work their way through the system and that get the outcome that is the, the correct outcome here, which again, I don't, I I've not done the, the proper leg work and, and background work on to really have a take on that, but you just hope that for the sake of the players, cause that's where my, my mind tends to always be, uh, you hope for the sake of the players, they get uh, they get what they, what they would like out of this season. Um, you know, no matter how, how many wins or losses that ends up being in the end. On the field, San Francisco was off to an okay start to the season. They were 10 and four, kind of a noisy 10 and four, hard to know exactly given some of the teams that they had played. They got swept last weekend in four games against Arizona state and Mizzou, uh, as all of that was going down, but they did bounce back to win their home opener on Tuesday against Sac state. So, we will see where things go from here for the Dons. Uh, all right, that's the news around college baseball this week. Uh, a lot of it, there are interesting on-field results with some of the midweek games as well. Uh, but we, at this point, will uh, will turn our attention to weekend five of college baseball. Like I said at the top, uh, very intriguing weekend. Lots of conferences, starting conference play. Uh, and, and always a good time to, uh, to dive into to those uh, happy to, to see conference play coming back around the country. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to preview some of the, the series to watch this weekend here in a minute. But first, check this out. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, Joe, we're ready to dive into some of the weekend's top series here on the Baseball America College podcast. Like I said, a lot of conferences open league play this weekend. Among those conferences, the SEC. There is not what I would call like a marquee must-watch SEC series this weekend. Georgia, Mississippi State maybe is the closest to that, but after everything that Mississippi State has gone through this year, it's hard for me to label it, label that as like the must-see series. I just think that conference play starting in the SEC, the way the schedule shakes out, there's a lot that can be learned about all of these teams. Um, So the series that I'm most interested in, I think from a, just from a learning perspective, I should say I'm in Baton Rouge. I'm here for LSU A&M and I'm going to learn, I'm hopefully going to learn a lot about those teams as well. Uh, But I I am, so I'm very interested about that. I'm also though, Joe, I want to spend some more time here on the pod talking about Arkansas and Kentucky. These are two teams that are off to pretty good starts this year. Uh, Arkansas took that loss to Stanford uh, in round rock two weeks ago, but that that's a, They've taken some losses on Fridays, but they they keep winning weekends. They keep looking 
pretty good doing it. They quite haven't quite clicked in to the full extent that we thought they could. Uh, and Kentucky has uh, has won a bunch of games this year. They won that series against TCU a few weeks ago that we talked about. I, these are two teams that I just don't feel like I know enough about right now. Um, and I, I, I feel like this weekend we, we should get more information about both the Hogs and the Wildcats. 100%. Like uh, I, this, this might be the series, you know, Georgia and Mississippi state is interesting for different reasons. I touched on it a little bit when we were talking about the land and Sims news, but I, I think the way I would distill down um, the Mississippi state Georgia series is that, you know, Georgia is probably the exact foil you want for Mississippi state to find out where is, where is the uh, Mississippi state ceiling? Because Georgia is a very solid team. You know, I think they kind of are what they are. And if Mississippi State has Omaha ceiling, that's probably a team, even on the road, they'd handle. However, if they're not, if they're flat, if if they're not inspired, if like if they don't play well, Georgia will win that series um, because they're just really solid. So I do think that is an interesting versus, you know, if Mississippi State was taking on a team that runs like kind of hot and cold or, or something like that, maybe we'd get some false signals. But I do think Georgia just being what they are is like the perfect team through which we can see what Mississippi state's really going to bring to the table. So that's kind of my little 60 second pitch on that, but I'm with you on Kentucky and Arkansas. Yeah. So on this Kentucky Arkansas series, like I am fascinated as well. Kentucky is an interesting team. It feels like they do this thing every so often where they get off to like a pretty inspiring start in non-conference. And, you know, sometimes the competition is, is up and down. I mean, they're not, for a lot of it is because they're not the biggest brand in college baseball, but they're not playing in the minute made tournament or the tournament in Arlington or tournaments on the West coast. Typically Um, this year, they did play a series against TCU. They won that series. Uh, So that is something on the resume for sure. Um, We think TCU is a a regional team as it's kind of its floor. So that certainly is a, is a positive there. And the numbers look good. We, I mean, we talked about Kentucky a few weeks ago. I feel like maybe just in, passing. I forget how we maybe got started on that, but, um, you know, Chase Step has been a star uh, for them so far. Like he's the the guy that the lineup has kind of moved around, but beyond that, like the, the transfer thing that Kentucky has tried to do where, you know, that it is just a part of their recruiting strategy at this point. Um, that seems to have worked at least in this so far pre-conference sample, you know, Daniel Harris, the fourth from Eastern Kentucky is one of their better bats. Hunter Jump from Arizona State is one of their better hitters. Um, Adam Fogel and John Thrasher from Hawaii and Hartford, respectively, a little less so, but those guys are both regulars in the lineup. Um, so they're clearly, you know, earning those at bats and the mount, it's kind of been the same thing. Their most effective reliever is Darren Williams from Eastern Kentucky. Tyler Guilfoyle from Lipscomb is one of their other better relievers. Um, the question with Kentucky has been the starting pitching that has been the most inconsistent piece of that. You know, a guy like Mag Cotto from South Carolina, speaking of transfers, hasn't had the start to the season that, that they, he would have liked. So that's the big question with Kentucky. I don't know if it's, they're getting Arkansas at a good or bad time necessarily the, the offense, maybe even though they were better against Illinois, Chicago, hasn't quite fully clicked on all cylinders yet. I think that's fair to say. So is that good? Because maybe Kentucky has an opportunity for it starting pitching to get some things done there. Or, you know, is, is maybe what we saw against Illinois, Chicago, a sign of things to come. 
uh, for the Arkansas offense. And maybe Kentucky is just getting kind of sent into a wood chipper here. Um, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to see on that. And Oh, by the way, with Arkansas, we talked about transfers for Kentucky, uh, at least in terms of batting average, their two best hitters in the lineup, Michael Turner, Kent state transfer and Chris Lanzilli wake forest transfer, uh, Lanzilli walk off home run last weekend against uh, UIC. So, um, interesting there because that's not a program that, that you would think would take a ton of transfers, but they, they do, they're pretty active in the transfer market. And it seems they've hit on a couple of there, even if Jace Bolroff and the, the biggest name of the group from Oklahoma has not been, um, has not been what, what they would have expected so far. So, um, fun series. I I'm, fascinated by it for sure. Um, I'd probably be even more fascinated by it if it was in Lexington, just because that adds that tilts the scales even more a little bit towards Kentucky. It would make it maybe even more of a a toss up series, but, uh, you know, as it is, I I'm just like you excited to do a little, do a little learning as they would say. Thing about Kentucky is that their pitching has not been good enough and they're walking into a place where, runs can be prevalent and like they have the offense to compete with Arkansas. So that that's, that's a positive, but they're going to need better pitching this weekend. Uh, you mentioned the starters haven't been great. And uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to need, they're going to need to figure that out as a, as a team right now, like a team ERA of five and a half, that's not going to get it done. The bullpen has been pretty solid. They have a number of guys they can turn to there. Um, but they haven't played many close games. Uh, so they're, I, I'm also intrigued to, I, I would love to see Kentucky in a close game on a weekend, just to kind of see what that looks like, uh, you know, in, a, in an SEC setting. Um, they, uh, the, the other thing is their weekend opponents to this point have been Jacksonville State, Western Michigan, TCU, and High Point. Now, TCU is a regional caliber opponent. If we take them out, though, High Point, Western Michigan, and Jacksonville State, uh, they have a combined uh, 10 wins on the season. You know, Arkansas is at 13, TCU is at 12. Uh, so Kentucky has really done what they need to do against those teams. They're 9-0 and against those teams, but those teams are not who they're facing this weekend, and, and they're not representative of that. And they're coming off of a midweek loss at Indiana in which they allowed 20 runs. So again, that speaks to the, the, the pitching. But if uh, if the bats for Kentucky can get going, you know, this is uh, this is a series that, that they can make some noise in. So I'll be very, very curious to, to see how this one shakes out. Uh, along those same lines, I'm also very interested in South Carolina and Tennessee. We spent a lot of time talking about South Carolina uh, on Monday, which is why we're not spending as much time here, but I will say South Carolina going to Tennessee, coming off of that series win against Texas, uh, big opportunity for the Gamecocks, also a big opportunity for the Vols uh, to to start SEC playoff with what could be a pretty solid series win at home if they are able to get it. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a the thing with South Carolina, you know, it's a big jump there. They did a pretty good job against Texas's lineup. It's obviously a little bit of a jump with to face the Tennessee lineup, especially with Tennessee being at home. That atmosphere, I'm sure, will be will be very good uh, as long as the weather is cooperating. I've not not looked at that, but that was going to be a bit actually. I, I forgot about that. I was actually going to do like a little bit where I just do like weather updates on all the different series, just as like a ongoing. I mean, it could be informative too, but it's not just <laughs> like it's not just for the joke. But it would be kind of a funny joke. But uh, regardless, 
Yeah, I mean, that's the thing for me is, okay, they did a pretty nice job against the Texas lineup. We talked about that. What can you do against the Tennessee lineup? Because that's a whole different whole different beast. I think that's probably the, the key there if the Gamecocks are going to be competitive this weekend. 100%. Um, also, quickly, Ole Miss uh, is going to Auburn. Uh, Auburn's fought it a little bit for the last week, but... You know, also Ole Miss has lost back-to-back games now. So, you know, we'll see about that one. And then LSU, AM, Florida plays Alabama. Uh, sadly, we're not getting Hunter Barco and Connor Prelip, uh, which would have been a fantastic Friday night start if uh, Connor Prelip hadn't undergone Tommy John surgery a year ago. Uh, here in Baton Rouge, uh, big spot. Uh, two new coaches coming into SEC play for the first time. LSU has taken care of work at home. I, I think they're undefeated at home. Uh, AM, you know, we've outlined their struggles, uh, but you know, now they they can, you know, fresh slate as as they enter SEC play. And, and we'll see if uh if that's something Jim Schloss Nagel can sell to the Aggies, uh, if they are able to uh to get things off to a, a decent start here at Alex Box Stadium. Just quickly on Auburn Ole Miss, you know, because I don't, I don't think Auburn, as you kind of alluded to, I don't know that Auburn is that team, but you know, Ole Miss is kind of an in- interesting spot where, you know, they've got John Gaddis, an AM Corpus Christi transfer, who is a good pitcher. I, I don't say that to to be disrespectful. <laughs> like, very accomplished pitcher at AM Corpus Christi, but he's they got him on Fridays. And like his numbers are good so far, but yeah, you know, we all know the SEC is a whole different beast. So um, you know, they've got him on Friday and they've got uh Derek Diamond on Saturday, and he's had a pretty nice season in some ways. Um, but I I think at this point is at least it seems to me becoming increasingly clear that barring some sort of transformation the rest of the way, like Derek diamond, maybe just kind of is what he is in terms of being a, a five inning starter. You kind of have to go five and out on him. Um, he's maybe not a guy who's going to give you more than that necessarily. So they really have some questions to answer on the mountain. We knew they would. Right. Um, but we were kind of betting on it being a little, at least I was, let me just speak for myself. Like I kind of felt like we might have a better idea going like whether or not it was going to last through sec play was going to be a whole nother question, but I kind of figured going into sec play, I thought I'd have a little more confidence and know firmly what Ole Miss was going to be trying to do on the mound. And it just feels like they haven't gotten there. Well, Auburn has decent offensive potential. So, and that ballpark plays kind of small. So maybe, maybe we will learn something this week uh, in terms of that. But again, like I, I think what you're going to see from all this is a lot of guys coming out of the bullpen. Um, I just think that's where this this pitching staff is this year, and uh, maybe that'll change as SEC play be you know gets gets further into it. But right now, I think uh, I think that they're just going to try and, and win with volume on the mound, and so far it's worked. And now we'll see them do it against uh, against some some tough competition coming up here uh, next week against Tennessee is a is a big one. Um, but obviously they're not overlooking, uh, opening week of SEC play against Auburn. Just quickly, real quick. Um, we don't have to expound on this cause you know, it's time crunch as they say, but one thing, you know, we talked coming into the season about, man, look at the offenses in the SEC, but then the, we knew the flip side of that is look at all these pitching questions, right? Maybe for like a future week, we need to talk a little bit about 
because just on paper, it looks like we're gonna have a lot of four hour games in the SEC because it's not just the offenses are good. It's that we've got a lot of teams that are just going to try to throw volume at you from the bullpen. And so I think that's a thing. But secondarily, the more interesting question to me is who like who in that group? And you could even throw like Mississippi State in there now just because they they had fewer questions, but now have just as many like who in that group. And again, we're not answering this for right now, but something to debate as, as we move forward is like who in that group has actually maybe exceeded expectations and actually looks like they've figured some things out because like the answer might be no one. <laughs> and like, maybe that's reality in the sec, just given how good the teams are there, that if you have issues, like it is extremely hard to work them out in season. Um, so maybe that's it, but uh, that's an interesting thing I think to monitor because I, 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 I at least went into the season kind of thinking like somebody surely will, like rise to the occasion and we'll go, Oh, this team's actually good on the mound. We just didn't see it coming. And like, so far, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, but it's the, it's the three teams that you would have expected Georgia, Florida, and Vanderbilt. Um, yeah. We haven't sure. really yeah. seen anyone else step up. And and I think Tennessee has the potential to do that. Uh, particularly if Tidwell ever comes back and you know, we'll, we'll see if that that's able to happen, but uh, yeah, no, I do think that's a fair point. Yeah, Tennessee, like just quickly, yeah, Tennessee might be the one. If like Chase Burns and Drew Beam keep coming, like that, that might be the one for sure. All righty, let's, uh, let's head over to Louisville. Number one Notre Dame comes to town. We've got Notre Dame and Louisville. This is Louisville's ACC opener. Notre Dame, of course, swept NC State in Raleigh last weekend and moved to number one. They played their home opener on Tuesday against Valpo uh, as the newly crowned number one team. They beat Valpo. Uh, Valpo now the Beacons, no longer the Crusaders, the Beacons. Uh, and look pretty good doing it. Now they'll go on the road, though, uh, and take on an intriguing Louisville team that is coming off of a messy series win against Michigan. It was messy uh, in part because of the weather. Uh, but I'm also just interested to see what this Louisville team looks like against a team that pitches as well as Notre Dame and defends, pitches and defends as well as Notre Dame, which, you know, right now no one is doing that better than the Irish. This, uh, this Louisville team can be pretty offensive and uh, now it now faces, again, one of the, the best pitching and defense outfits in the country. Yeah, I mean, just to, to put some numbers on it so people really kind of understand, I mean, Notre Dame, ERA, 166. It looks like, boy, the numbers in this screen, like on their stat sheet. Hold on. I'm going to 166. Yes. It's okay. I, I am like, <laughs> I mean, I just went to the eye doctor. These glasses are supposedly up to date, but my goodness, those numbers are 166. Fielding percentage. This is the more impressive number for me. I mean, I mean, which is saying something because 166 is wolf, but 992 fielding four errors all season. I think Teddy mentioned that on the, the recap podcast on yeah, uh, they're, Monday. They're the, Best fielding team in the country. North Carolina also has a 166 ERA, and they are they they must if you extend the numbers out far enough, somewhere North Carolina has the edge because the NCAA lists Notre Dame as the second, uh, you know, second in the in the nation in ERA, but uh, number yep. one and number two in the country in run prevention. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm with you. I think it's an intriguing series here. Louisville, speaking of teams, we talk about East Carolina getting up off the mat, and they have to some degree, but Louisville really has. I mean, they've just taken two losses since that opening weekend in Tampa. Competition has been, you know, not very good, frankly, for the most part. Michigan was a step up. 
Um, you know, just hard to know what to know from that, that series though, just because to your point, the weather was just brutal. Um, and those series, you just, I don't, I never know what to take from those because it's like, who's dealing with the sideways snow, you know? And like, I don't know. Well, and, and not only, not only was the weather brutal, but they also, because they tried to play the doubleheader on Friday and then had to s- suspend the game. It was like, you played one and a half games, took a day off and played one and a half games. Also, there was terrible weather. Like it, it, it's a very difficult series to understand what happened in. Right. But, you know, as long as we take things at face value, um, this Louisville team is swinging it pretty well. And I was dubious of, and I guess still am, because like, let's see it against teams that that really pitch it, right? Um, I was a little bit dubious of this being like an Omaha quality offense. And it has gotten better as time has gone on. They also, I think it's a pretty dynamic group. And I think that can play to, I think that plays well just because they're not a team that's going to have to, to necessarily bank on one or two guys. When you talk about the fact that, you know, Christian Napchik is a, you know, um, kind of a typical like pesky leadoff guy, although he's hit with some more power this year, but he, you know, he also has stolen nine bases. Levi Usher, as long as Levi Usher is getting on base, well, which he was not when I was there in Tampa, but he's been a little better lately. Uh, he's nine for nine and stolen bases as a team. They've stolen 37. They've also hit 28 home runs. Again, let's do the level of competition caveats here. Um, but, you know, Ben Metzinger's hit eight home runs and Cameron Masterman's hit five home runs. And so um, they have been able to run the ball par- ball out of the ballpark as well. So I, I think it is an offense that can do a lot of different things well. Um, but I think if, um, to your point, I think that's that's the key matchup here because they just haven't, they haven't seen anything like what Notre Dame is going to bring to the table this season. Not even that first weekend in Tampa, which is far and away the best competition they've played um, on the, on the whole, I would say. So um, that's the matchup to watch, even though I do think it is also kind of interesting to say, to see, okay, Tate Keener, uh, for example, just to pick him out. Um, you know, what can you do this weekend against the team that we have favored to be the best team in the ACC? And it's, it's still a pretty decent offense as well. So but that's that's definitely the thing is is what does this Louisville offense look like against a team that that pitches it and fields it at an elite level? Louisville is eleven and two since opening weekend, but they've played one game against a team with a winning record. That was TCU in a midweek. They did win it nine to eight. They had to hang on for dear life to win it at the end, but they did win it. Um, they played Michigan for three games. Michigan's five hundred. Michigan's probably better than five hundred, but the rest of these teams: Xavier, Dartmouth, Morehead State. Northern Kentucky, Bellarmine, not projected regional teams. Uh, Xavier's talented, but um, you know they're also five and twelve, and I didn't pick them to win the Big East or finish second. So, you know that that's who they've played. Now Louisville's done what you would want them to do against such a schedule, for the most part. And Louisville right now ranks third nationally in scoring at ten point three runs per game. So we're going to find out how how real that is and that to me is the the best part of the series is you know we saw Louisville on opening weekend we didn't really love what we saw they've gone away they've had time to work on stuff and uh you know get right uh and now they're gonna re-emerge and they're gonna re-emerge against the best team in the country right now so uh fascinating contrast in styles I think it is good for Louisville that the series is at home because uh, Jim Patterson Stadium, A, is just a tough place for opponents to play traditionally, and B, maybe a little more offensive than than Frank Eck. Uh, Also, 
I don't know how much this is going to matter, but this series was contentious a year ago. They split the, the series in South Bend. They did not play a third game. Uh, Louisville had feelings about that. They, they definitely felt like the weather would have allowed for it. And Louisville had so many feelings about it that they practiced in Frank X Stadium uh, after the game was canceled. So I don't know what kind of bad blood does or doesn't exist after that, but it, it does add to the intrigue here at least. The, a couple of other little notes here. One, uh, can't really catch a break weather-wise. Weather looks pretty rough in Louisville on Friday and Saturday, and particularly Friday. Like that, that strikes me as they maybe try to move up the Friday game a little bit um, because like things get kind of worse as the evening goes on. But um, so that's not great. Um, the other thing with Louisville is that they are one of the things that came out of that opening weekend is they were really just kind of throwing the ball around. It was not a good defensive weekend. They've been better lately. And that tends to be something that quality of opponent can matter because you're getting more hard hit balls. You're getting faster players. You're getting all that stuff, but that tends to be a little more controlled for opponent. And they have been a little bit better defensively since then. So that is a, another positive sign in a, in a season so far that, that has been, has shown a decent number of them, for Louisville. Um, so this is, this is the big test we'll see. And the other thing about Louisville is that, you know, if they play well this weekend and win this series, they have a chance to get the win at their back a little bit. Their next two series after this are Boston college and Pitt, And so there is really a chance for Louisville to jump out ahead here. And, you know, momentum is only as good as the next day starting pitcher, as they say, but I do think there is something to the idea of, you know, you know, they could really kind of catch a little bit of a, is it a tailwind or a headwind when the wind is behind you? Is that a tailwind? Tailwind. Yes. tailwind. Yeah. They could catch a little bit of a tailwind as they go into a period of time when they play North Carolina, Florida state, NC state, Clemson, all kind of in the, the middle portion of the ACC schedule. Already let's head out West. The big PAC 12 series this weekend is Stanford heading to Arizona this is a Saturday through Monday series for reasons. I, I don't know the reasons. Um, it's a top 25 showdown. It's Stanford looking to get right after losing that Pac-12 series to, to open conference play last week uh, against Oregon. And uh, Arizona went on the road and won two out of three at Cal. Uh, should be an intriguing series. Two really good offenses going at it. Uh, runs will not be at a premium this weekend, I don't think. Uh, I think we could get some high-scoring action here. Uh, Stanford really needs to uh, to bounce back, though, because this is not the kind of series you would want uh, to, to have to deal with after losing a home conference series. Yeah, I mean, this is – yeah, I mean, this is also if, – if the Stanford – you know, we, we talked about how good is their pitching relative to kind of our expectations and what we were hoping to see um, from them in terms of improvement. Like if, if those strides aren't real, they will get exposed very quickly this weekend against Arizona. Arizona again, looks like they have just a top, top flight offense. Um, some of the names you, you, you know, and love, you know, Daniel Susak from years past, but Tanner O'Trimba has taken a step forward and, Chase Davis, who kind of felt like maybe the most important player there in terms of having a breakout, at least to this point, has has done so. Um, still some concerns. He's still you know, quite a bit of strikeouts, but he's sitting for power and he's dynamic player. So that offense is is really really good. So if you do have questions, that is, this is not a team that you you want to um, 
but up against, and they do enough on the mound. Like I was kind of checking in and he didn't have a, a very good start against Cal over the weekend, but you know, for the most part, TJ Nichols has been kind of the guy they were looking for in the rotation. The stuff is, is very, very good. And Garrett Irvin has been as solid as, as ever for them in the rotation. Um, so I think on the mound, you know, I think Arizona has really all we were looking for for them is it was a little different than Stanford where it was like, you know, if Stanford is, is really going to be, um, you know, the team we think they can be given what they lost offensively. Like they, I think that we talked about that pitching staff is really going to have to take a pretty big step also losing Brendan back. Right. With Arizona, I think it was more like there's enough talent on this pitching staff that's returning. Like we're just kind of looking for them to make maybe like a little bit of a moderate step. And I, th- I think there's signs that they have done that. We'll have to wait a little longer to make any sort of definitive statements about that. But I do think there are the signs there. And so, you know, if, if they're able to kind of, you know, Stanford's offense obviously can score plenty of runs on its own, but I think if this Arizona offense is able to get Stanford behind the eight ball in these games, I do think they have the pitching to pitch this out in a way that the inverse might not be true um, necessarily. So for, for Arizona, I think getting out quickly, getting into the Stanford bullpen, you know, trying to really keep them on their heels all weekend, I think is, is really, really important. And, you know, Stanford, I think it's, you're just kind of hoping that the pitching staff that we saw through the first three weeks is, is more the real thing versus what we saw last weekend. And and if so, I think they're going to be right in this series. Arizona's offense has been really good when I saw it opening weekend, it looked like one of the best in the country. They've not done a whole lot since then to, to change that opinion, but Texas state did get them. Uh, and Texas state did hold them to 12 runs in a series in Tucson. So if you can do it, like you, it can be done. Um, I, I should say, I don't know that Stanford's the team to do it. And I would not want to be in a slugfest with this Arizona offense. So Stanford, is, if, if they're going to win this weekend, I guess they're going to do it one of two ways. And one of them is that pitching staff stepping up and pitching like they did in Round Rock. Uh, so we know that we know Stanford has it in them. It just hasn't been consistent. Uh, and the other way is getting their offense to have a real breakout and, and just outslug Arizona. I, I don't think there's, I don't really think there's a third way to, to beat Arizona. And I think you're better off trying to outpitch them. Uh, and, and again, we, we, we've seen it from Stanford, but just coming off of the week that they had against Oregon, uh, we'll see now if they are are able to do it there on the road. I mean, like the one thing I will say about the Arizona offense, and like this is not what Texas State did. So like I don't know, and I didn't really. I was that was the weekend I was in Houston, so I was not able to really super closely like break down anything else that was happening. But you know, so I'm not sure exactly what they did specifically, but it is a little bit of a top heavy offense now, where it's like you know, if you can kind of slow down and easier said than done, but like if you can keep Otrimba and Susak and, and Chase Davis, you know, McC- Nick McClary, those guys Figurio, aren't the ones that beat you. No, but I don't know who else here is beating you for sure. Yeah. So like, there are some guys who've had some nice moments, like Noah Turley, you know, big hulking power hitter, like Mac Bingham is a nice player, but this is an offense that hasn't had Tony Bullard. Um, you know, Tyler Casagrande is a guy who's played quite a bit and he's gotten off to a little slow start. He doesn't appear to have as of yet taken the next step that I think they were maybe hoping for from him coming off of, of you know, being a guy who was a, a, a big contributor last year on the Omaha team. He was playing a lot in Omaha. 
Um, so it is a little bit of a top heavy offense. And so again, like I, I say it, it's, it's one of those things that's simple, but not easy. Like if, if you can kind of mitigate what Susak and Otrimba in particular and Chase Davis can, if you're able to mitigate the damage they do, you, you could probably get this offense. And again, like Otrimba and Susak had hits against Texas state. So I don't, <laughs> they didn't do that necessarily. They figured out some other formula, but those are the guys you're really looking at in this lineup. Well, I think the other thing here before we move on is that Arizona is not a team that's going to force the issue on the bases a ton. They're not a team that, that's out here bunning or, or putting pressure on you. Like they're really just trying to string together big innings and, and put up a bunch of extra base hits. So if you are able to deny them that, keep the ball in front of you, as it were, uh, you know, then their, their offense doesn't, you know, th- that's, that's how they want to play. They don't want to have to work for the, to, to move you around the bases. They want to play for the beginning. So if you deny them the beginning, and again, easier said than done, but if you can work to just contain, uh, you know, that, that does seem to be the, the way to go here. All right. Uh, also starting this weekend is Conference USA play. Joe, I th- the, the best series here is FAU and Southern Miss. Now, you wrote about Conference USA and kind of its unfortunate position, as it were, for RPI. There, This isn't like a standout series. It's an intriguing series. Both of these teams are off to pretty solid starts. Southern Miss sure looked like they were off to a great start until they played DBU last weekend. Uh, so I, I don't really know what to make of, uh, of, of these teams at this point, but I, I just want to have this as an entree point to uh, a, a broader Conference USA discussion and uh, maybe the answer to the question, is FAU back? Because last year was not, you know, they, a year in which CUSA put four teams in the tournament, one of them was not the Owls. And not the other owls either, but we're not here to talk about race. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, four four conference USA teams, and neither of them had an owl mascot, which is something that would be like inconceivable in 2015. You know, um, yeah. So FAU is back in terms of like this team can really swing it. Um, shocker, um, you know, Nolan Shanuel, who's a name you should know if you are kind of a, a draft Nick, if you will. Um, his numbers have been really good. He's a guy who has a very real chance to be the highest drafted player in FAU baseball history. I think that distinction, I wrote this in the CSA preview, I think goes to CJ Chatham, I think is the guy who is the highest drafted player. Yeah. I think Frank was like a third round. I think Chatham was a second round. Um, but yes, those two guys are the guys we're talking about. He's got a real chance to better that. Um, numbers this year have been, have been very, very good. The other guy there in the lineup that's been a game changer for them is Gabriel Rincones. Uh, seven home runs so far on the year, but uh, there's a lineup that that really slugs. They're hitting 321, they have 26 home runs. The problem, stop me if you've heard this before, is on the mound. Their team ERA is almost six. Um, they don't. They literally don't have a single guy. Not even, you know, some teams you'll see a guy thrown an inning and hasn't given up a run. They don't have any guy, regardless of how many or few innings, with an ERA below three on the team. Hunter Cooley's been their their best starter there, um, but it's you know, that's the question with FAU is, can you get enough, can you string enough outs together? And that's not an uncommon issue for FAU. That tends to be the way they build their team. So I don't think that's any reason to worry about this team per se, because that's just what they do. And the offense is good enough to 
mitigate that more often than not. The trouble is last year didn't mitigate it. And I do have to kind of wonder if in a CUSA that's been better than the CUSA we saw in say 2019, um, is that enough? Like, can you do enough in CUSA and in your midweek games, by the way, because they always make hay in their midweek games. Like, is that enough in that scenario? And we'll see um, because it seems like that's kind of what they're going to try to do again. It's an interesting contrast in styles because Southern Miss and, and you and I, Teddy, talked about this before the season, like actually had a lineup that we felt pretty decent about. And yet, like this team has reverted back to form and is a pitching oriented outfit again. Um, you know, their team ERA is 259. That's top 15 in the country in terms of team ERA. A Delta State grad transfer, Hunter Riggins, has been awesome. He's given up four runs, only two of them earned in 26 innings so far. He's not a guy who really misses bats. He just kind of gets it done. Uh, they've also had a lot of success in midweek games, which is not pertinent to this weekend necessarily, but they've, they've won midweek games against South Alabama and Mississippi State and Tulane and Alabama most recently. Um, and Tanner Hall is a big part of that. Like he's, you know, been awesome in his midweek games, but more so than the rotation though, outside of Riggins, it's been the bullpen. Tyler Stewart, um, has been their long man. Um, but Chandler best is off to a nice start. Dalton Rogers, Landon Harper. Um, they've got a lot of volume to throw at you there. And the, the stuff on the staff is, is really, really good. It's power five stuff in a lot of, in a lot of cases. So that's kind of where their bread is buttered. Um, now you can look at the other side of the coin offensively for Southern Miss and say, you know, Reese Ewing has been a breakout star and Slade Wilkes, who was not very good as a freshman last year, even, even though expectations were that he would be an instant contributor, he has kind of burst onto the scene this year, which is a good development. Um, but there's a whole group of guys here. When you, like you talk about Danny Lynch or Will McGillis or Chris Sargent or Charlie Fisher, those were all guys who were a big part of things last year. Um, and they are struggling out of the gate. Um, so if you subscribe to kind of the theory that those guys get going to a larger degree as time goes on, then I think there's a real reason to be bullish on this offense. But I think, I think what we've kind of learned here is that this is just a program that is always going to figure it out on the mound. It seems like they've done that again. And if this is what they are, this is enough to be a CUSA title contender um, and do all of the things they normally, they normally do here. And for this weekend, it does kind of give you an interesting clash of styles because, you know, FAU is going to try to pound the baseball here and score a whole bunch of runs. And, and Southern Miss is just going to try to keep them off the board and, and win with a much lower final score. I, uh, I, I find that to be, to be interesting. I, I don't know whether it matters that it's in Hattiesburg or not, but the, the, the contrasting styles here is, is significant. I, I think that Southern Miss uh, is going to bounce back fine from what happened last week against DBU when they got swept. Uh, they certainly looked fine in midweek action against Bama getting that win. Uh, but they, they definitely need this weekend. They, they need a response. Uh, elsewhere in the conference, you have Old Dominion visiting Middle Tennessee State. Uh, Middle hasn't been great this year, but they did just win a series at Auburn. Uh, the other big one for me is Louisiana Tech going to San Antonio uh, to face UTSA. Uh, those two teams uh, were, were obviously we know what La Tech is. They hosted a regional last year. They're aside from losing a series uh, to Tulane a few weeks ago, La Tech has been very good again. UTSA was solid last year, off to a good start this year. Uh, that that is the other thing that, that really jumps out here. 
this weekend conference USA for me. Yeah. What I would say for people more generally is Teddy alluded to what I'd written about CUSA and kind of in a way I've written about in the last two weeks, although this past three strikes was not specifically about them, but it touches on some of the same themes is that, you know, I think CUSA is better this year than it was last year. And we've talked about this a million times, so I won't totally rehash it, but basically the four teams that made regionals were far and away the four best teams in the conference. FAU kind of was in the middle where they were. Well, it was, it was like four FAU and then the rest of the conference. Correct. Yes. FAU was kind of out in an Island and, and was like kind of in the bubble talk towards the end of the season, but not really necessarily, but they also weren't bad. Um, and like they always do, they made a run late, which kind of made us reconsider them a little bit as time went on. But this year I think is a little bit different where I think those four teams, they're good again. It feels like they've come back to the pack a little bit. And that may not actually be true. It might just be that the 2021 version of those teams just lived a charmed life. Like sometimes you have that where a league or individual teams just, you know, they win close games. Yes. But also just the math works out. The RPI math is just in their favor and there's nothing you can do to really change that. And so I think that might've been happening there. These teams could be just as good as they were last year. And that math just might not work for them. Um, this week I wrote about what teams are doing in non-conference play and their non-conference records and CUSA stacks up pretty well. Uh, they're right in the middle of the pack among the, what I just grabbed is the 10 best conferences. Generally, they were right in the middle of that pack. Um, so that maybe is a little bit of a positive sign there. However, the issue I think they're going to have is this is what I've been building to is I think if you watch this weekend and you see UTSA, which is at home, challenging to win that series or just straight up winning that series against Louisiana tech or Western Kentucky challenging to beat Charlotte. I think it's less likely middle beats old dominion, but we'll see. Um, and then FAU is just good enough to where that would not be a huge surprise if they win that series, but those two series, the UC UTSA and law tech and Western Kentucky and Charlotte, if those underdog teams challenge to win those series, I think it's a sign of what I've, uh, for CUSA's sake, I think they should be a little bit afraid of, which is, this conference is better top to bottom than it was last year. And that might mean that the teams at the top get beat up a little bit more, uh, which is good for the strength of the conference, but bad for putting more teams into regionals because I think those top teams might take on more losses. Are you ready for some more news? Okay. Yeah. Let's hear it. Conference USA ranks fifth in conference RPI. It has more teams right now with 200 plus RPIs than top 100 RPIs. And look, it's, March 17, we can't put a ton of stock into any of this yet, uh, but nobody went out in non-conference play and made hay. Now, all of the teams that are good in Conference USA, I mean, really just Conference USA in general, will continue to play strong midweek competition and will have opportunities to continue to better themselves. But ODU is sitting here at 143 and is now going to have to rely a significant amount on its conference games to improve that number. And it will go up. They keep winning games. It'll go up. But, you know, they're there. FAU is at 230. Charlotte is at 114. Like, these are these are big holes you're, you're starting from. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how many bids this conference can get. But the four bids that they got last year don't seem like they're coming this year unless those same four teams can absolutely separate in, in the same way that they did last year, or I guess four different teams. UAB has looked pretty good to this point, for instance, 
under new coach Casey Dunn. But in, unless they get that kind of separation coming, uh, the, the conference is, is probably not going to fare as well on selection Monday. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes this so interesting and so complicated is just that, yeah, a team like UAB, like clearly looks better than they, than they were the last couple of years. And so that's, that's part of it. And, you know, so what I tried to grapple with when I wrote about CUSA and three strikes a couple of weeks ago is just that there's, there are factors pulling in both directions. So you've got to your point, you know, these CUSA teams, geography being what they are, and Old Dominion's a little bit in a tougher spot in a literal and figurative sense, just because, you know, last year they made a lot of hay with like beating East Carolina, which they just did again. But this year beating East Carolina probably doesn't mean as much as it did last year when that team was elite in a true in an on-field sense and in an RPI sense. And then the rest of their big wins were against Charlotte, you know? Um, so the positive spin is that for most of these teams, they are going to continue to get opportunities in the midweek against good teams. And you and I have talked about this, but it feels like it goes like kind of under considered that generally in college baseball, we tend to treat midweek games as like the redheaded stepchild. We don't pay as much attention to them. I'm as guilty of that as anybody. And we, however, like, you know, if Charlotte beats and I have not looked at their schedule, so I don't know how many of these they actually have, but if Charlotte goes out and beats Carolina and state and, um, you know, maybe Campbell is in that mix or whoever else in the Carolinas, Duke. Um, those wins could end up being quality wins in the end. And we just wrote paying attention to them as much as we would weekend series. And so I say that to say that, you know, Charlotte went six and eight last year against RPI top 50 teams. La Tech was 10 and 13. Southern Miss was nine and 11. So it's not like you have to have elite records against the best teams you play to put yourself in that position. So if you cobble together a bunch of like midweek wins and like, you know, Charlotte has the opening weekend stuff and yes, La Tech, you know, lost a series to Tulane, but what if Tulane does end up being a top 50 RPI team? Like they, they won one game against Tulane and that's a quality win. Those wins end up adding up. And sometimes the, the total in the W column oftentimes has an outsized importance compared to the total in the L column when we're talking about records against RPI top 50 teams or what have you. Um, the trouble is, again, to rehash this, like the trouble is last year, a lot of those top RPI wins were coming against teams in the conference. And I just don't know if they can bank on that this time around. Yeah, it's uh, it's a real challenge. I'm looking at ODU's schedule now. They have two games against Virginia still to come. They, they have more against VCU and Campbell and, and East Carolina. But yeah, like if, if some of those teams, you know, Virginia is obviously the exception. They're doing just fine, uh, better than just fine. But if, if ECU and, and VCU and Campbell don't, don't improve their current situation, like those aren't just, those are not going to carry the same weight they carried for the Monarchs last year. And uh, it's, uh, it's obviously going to have a, an adverse effect on uh on RPI. Uh, already. So those are, those are the series I picked out, Joe. What's, uh, what's the under the radar series that you have your eye on? So this, uh, this time around, as I listeners will be treated to me turning the page in my notebook here, this little ASMR for you right here, let me turn the page. Um, so we're going a little further off the radar than we normally do here. Uh, just because I, I find this series kind of intriguing. And I think there's bigger picture themes to talk about with this series, but um, Tennessee tech is traveling to East Tennessee state this weekend. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, we're 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 in it now. <laughs> like we are really digging in here. Uh, this is a Joe special if I ever saw one. But this is my um, own fault for putting USM and FAU on my own list. But yeah, I mean, like, yeah, peek behind the curtain. Joe had that series all prepared to go. Uh, is this under the radar series? Um, but it, it was worth talking about. Obviously, we got a lot of discussion out of the CUSA stuff, so it does make some sense that we did it there. But so we're really digging in. Um, but I do think there's some interesting kind of stuff to talk about here with with these two teams. They're both off to good starts. You know, Tennessee Tech is 11 and four. The most interesting thing about them, big picture, is that Matt Braga's back. Um, you may have missed that, but Matt Braga was their coach through 2018. Um, you know, took them to a super regional in 2018. They went to a regional in 2017 and beat Florida State. You know, he led them to their greatest success in program history and the greatest success for any team in OVC history. Went to Rice, didn't work out, you know, number of different reasons for that probably. Now he's back at Tennessee Tech and they're off to a pretty good start. And so I, I'm i just kind of fascinated and, and I guess we'll just take the readers along for a little bit of, of a ride here. As long as Tennessee Tech continues to win, like I think there's probably a pretty decent chance that I go out of my way to go see Tennessee Tech sometime this season because I'd love to just kind of dig in on stuff like, you know, and talk to Matt Braga about, you know, how, like, first of all, how many players, are there any players on this roster? I think Tyler Sylvester is still on this roster and I'm pretty sure he played for Matt Braga the first time around, but like how many players are on this team who were there when you were there last time, you know, like how many guys are, are still there and does it feel a little like a twilight zone, but also like how far away were these teams when you arrived, like basically what I'm trying to get at is how much of this is just kind of the Matt Braga effect where he's just someone who kind of understands the formula for winning at Tennessee tech. Um, you know, I try not to get too worked up about, you know, these coaches being magicians and stuff like that, because I do believe there are just a lot of different factors that go into it, but is there something to that? Like, did he arrive at Tennessee tech and were, were was Steve Smith? Like how well was he recruiting when he was there? It's obviously he coached a lot of history and, uh, success in the past at Baylor, you know, so was the talent still pretty good when Braga got there? Um, or did he get there and say, Oh, we've got some, some real work to do here, you know? So how far off was the roster, but regardless, you know, they are winning, winning games now. Um, you know, I, I don't know. They SEMO will probably have something to say about who wins the OVC this year. Um, but Tennessee tech certainly looks the part of a team that could get into that mix. Um, and stop me if you've heard this before, but they, uh, they can hit, uh, they're hitting 332 as a team. They've got 27 home runs. Uh, Jason Hinchman, who hit, I think it was 24 home runs several years ago, um, is off to a pretty good start. He has five home runs already this season. Um, as it often is, pitching is the more complicated piece of the puzzle for Tennessee Tech. Uh, their team ERA is is over five, which honestly could be worse. You know, um, that doesn't sound too bad considering that it's the OVC and it's uh, Tennessee tech, which has the history of being a, a very offensive program. So I just think there's a lot of interesting stuff there with Tennessee tech. And so, um, that's fascinating. Um, and you know, and by the way, like it's an 11 to four start and they've had some decent wins. Like they beat Oral Roberts, they've beaten South Alabama. Um, you know, they lost a series to Southeastern Louisiana. Um, and that's, I don't know what to make of sea law so far because they play a tough schedule. And so I really haven't figured out exactly what they are, but that's definitely a tough series and they won a game there. So that's, that's something, uh, East Tennessee state, similarly off to a 12 and three start. Their schedule has been relatively soft. Their best result is a series win against Winthrop. Um, but they're an interesting matchup because they're, they do pitch pretty well. Their team ERA is under three. 
One guy to look out for there is Hunter Lloyd has been their best starting pitcher. 079 ERA, 31 strikeouts and 22 and two thirds innings opponents hitting 139 against him. And listeners may remember in 2020 ETSU had a pitcher named Landon Knack who like burst onto the scene in 2020 and his velocity took a big jump and he, you know, was a, a trendy prospect guy and he ended up getting drafted in 2020, even in that shortened draft. Um, Lloyd stuff is not quite that. However, you know, it's like 90, 94 with the fastball and his slider has a 55% whiff rate so far. Um, and the numbers are somewhat similar to what Landon Knack was doing early in 2020. So um, he's kind of a fascinating guy to see go up against a, a Tennessee Tech offense uh, that is formidable. And ETSU is at home, which I think helps because uh, Tennessee Tech plays in a little more of an offensive environment. ETSU can hit as well. They're hitting 308 as a team. So um, kind of a fun little series. Neither team, I think, is a team that I'm super looking at as at-large candidates just because of the conference they play in. But I do think if you're the type of person, a sicko like me, who is looking for teams that could be a little bit tricky uh, come either May to pull some upsets in the conference tournament or June if they get into regionals, I think these are two teams to look at. So I, I wrote the SOCON conference preview, as I always do, I guess. Um, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of ETSU. You know, they they didn't seem and you know, they weren't considered by coaches in the league to, you know, be one of the, the preseason favorites. They're, those were Mercer and Wofford and, you know, Samford with a, a new coach and uh, a lot of transfers in and out, you know, as, as the, the reigning champs, you know, what, what were they going to be? They probably weren't, didn't feel like they were going to take that much of a step back and Western Carolina seemed intriguing. Wasn't really sure what to make of ETSU. Here they are sitting at 12 and three and the schedule has been very light. They've played one team with a winning record to this point. That was a midweek loss to Tennessee. I, uh, but they're winning a bunch of games. This is a good measuring stick for them. Uh, SoCon conference play is not too far off now. And, uh, you know, I, I think this will be a pretty good test of, of where they're at. I guess SoCon conference play is still like three weeks off, at least for ETSU. Um, but the, the, this will be a, a better test than what we've seen to this point. The other thing that I am fascinated about you did a good job of, of running through the Tennessee Tech and the Matt Braga situation Tennessee Tech got off to a 10-0 start this year that included the wins against Oral Roberts and South Al on opening weekend uh, there in Mobile that is the first time Tennessee Tech as a program has ever been 10-0 and look Matt Braga had some really good years there they they went to to regionals and, and they won all those they, you know that 2018 season they won all all those games had that incredible winning streak but they had never been 10 and 0 before. And so the fact that they are off to this kind of start um, is, is impressive. It's loud. Uh, they haven't been quite as good since that winning streak ended, uh, of course, but the, the competition, you know, at Auburn, at Southeastern Louisiana, I mean, that, that's pretty good. The, the midweek against Lipscomb is, is what it is, I guess. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued about this one. Uh, I like the, uh, the little bit of uh, the, the the pitching and, and the offense component that you get there with uh, East Tennessee State versus versus Tennessee Tech here, and uh, yeah, we'll be interested to see, especially where ETSU comes out of this weekend, and then try and extrapolate what that means for the the SoCon race moving forward. 
The other thing I would put on people's radars quickly is, you know, Sunbelt play getting going. I looked at some of these Sunbelt series. None of them really super stand out to me as being something that, that we should have thrown onto the podcast as my under the radar stuff, but that is getting underway. I'm intrigued by South Alabama. I wrote a little bit about Miles Symington in the South Alabama lineup who's hitting like almost 500 so far this season. That's an intriguing team that is more offensive than I thought they were going to be, at least so far, which that was the question about them. So that's that's an intriguing team. Um, we've talked a little about the Raging Cajuns. They're on the road against Troy. We picked Georgia Southern in the preseason, which admittedly was kind of like a shrug of the shoulders and like we liked some of the stuff they had. They're on the road against App. Um, so none of the teams in Texas state, of course, has probably has the most impressive wins. They're ranked currently they're playing at Arkansas state. So none of the teams that we're really most intrigued by in the Sunbelt are playing each other this weekend. I'm sure we will preview a Sunbelt series in this space at some point in the future, because there are enough interesting teams in that mix. Just, um, so keep that on your radar as we go into this weekend, but nothing this weekend super stood out in that conference. Uh, before we get out of here, I will also mention that, you know, like I said, at the top, or at some point I said the big West conference play starts this weekend. If you're interested, the big West series to watch is Cal Poly and Northridge. Uh, CSUN of course, coached by our friend and former colleague, Dave Serrano, who is in his final year of, uh, of college coaching. They're off to a really nice start in non-conference play. Cal Poly is not, um, but they, played okay and have the superstars in Brooks Lee and Drew Thorpe. And traditionally Cal Poly does this. They don't play well in non-conference and then they go out and put together a really nice big West season and finish somewhere between second and fourth. So we'll see if that's, uh, if that's where the Mustangs are headed this year uh, or if uh, what the Matadors are doing is for real. Uh, That is one that I am, I'm very interested in out West. Yeah. I wrote about just quickly. I, for this week in three strikes, what I was a little bit alluding to with CUSA is I was, you know, looking at different conferences and what they did in non-conference. And of the 10 conferences I ranked, the Big West came in last. Uh, they've only won, I think, 41%. I don't have the exact number in front of me, 41% of their non-conference games. And you can look at that two ways. Uh, the positive spin is that Long Beach and Irvine and Santa Barbara have all kind of already won enough games. And I guess CSUN to a certain example, because a certain degree, because they have um, they have some nice wins along the way. Those teams have um, won enough quality games that if they are still in position to be at large teams, potentially if they do enough in big West play, the problem is there are currently only three big West teams, uh, Irvine, Santa Barbara and CSUN who are above 500 long beach is seven and seven, unless that changed on Wednesday, that was not updated for Wednesday's results. But at the time there were three teams above 500 and that's not really a recipe for being able to pick up enough quality wins in the Big West to be an at-large team because also, oh, by the way, you know, the Big West does not have a tournament. So it's not even a situation like last year in the American, for example, where ECU ran off a ridiculous record and was an at-large team and then lost in the conference tournament. If Irvine, for example, does what it did last year in the Big West, it's just going to be the auto bid. So that hurts them as well in that regard. So again, the Big West is in this position again where they've got some quality. They've definitely got some teams that are at large uh, caliber in terms of talent. It's just a matter of not being sure if they're going to be able to build good enough resumes. Big West uh, Beach did win on Wednesday, so there are now four. And those Ah, four four teams. Those four are all top 100 in RPI. The Big West also has, at the moment, 
five sub 200 teams. Yep. This was the concern that big West coaches had when they expanded. Um, And yeah, some of the the two teams that they added most recently in expansion, UC San Diego and Cal state Bakersfield are in the sub 200. Also in the sub 200 though, is uh, Cal state Fullerton. So yeah. Uh, And then you have long rebuild there. Yeah. Yeah. Four and 11 right now for the Titans. And then you have uh, UC Riverside and UC Davis who have both, they're both dealing with just really difficult situations. UC Riverside, uh, of course, a year ago was questioning whether they were going to continue as a Division One institution. And while that question was resolved in the short to medium term, I'm not 100% sure it's been completely resolved. They're trying to pass a student fee um, resolution and meeting some opposition. And if that doesn't happen, I I don't know if they'll have to reopen their their debate there. Uh, and then UC Davis, of course, uh, with the hazing and situation and that, that led to the program being suspended for several months and operating without a normal coaching staff in the fall. Uh, you know, th- those two situations are what they are, but they aren't going to help the Big West. And uh, so, yeah, those those four teams that are in position now really need to make hay. Um, unfortunately, though, we know that Cal Poly can play. Uh, we know that Hawaii can play and some of these other teams aren't, aren't going to be pushovers either. So if you're, the, if you're a, a big West team, you know, you're going to have to come prepared every week still. Uh, but right now those four teams are in, ha- have positioned themselves that they can, they can make a run at it. And, you know, frankly, I, I was very down on the big West uh, a couple weeks ago. Those four teams have restored some of my faith in the big West. It, it'll be a multi-bit league. Uh, I just don't know whether that number will be two, three, probably not four, uh, but we'll, we'll see how that shakes out here. All right, that'll do it for us today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, big weekend of college baseball coming up, of course, and we'll have it all covered for you over at baseballamerica.com. We'll be back here with another edition of the podcast on Monday. You can Make sure you're subscribed or following the Baseball America podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. And we come at you twice a week during the college season on Monday, wrap, recapping the weekend, and uh, then here uh, at the uh, on Thursday, previewing the weekend to come. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And we'll uh, keep you abreast of all the action uh, as it's happening throughout the weekend. Thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.